Smooth segue there, man. Very nice. I try. <laughs> This is hell. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell, which is exactly what appears to be happening in Atlanta with the proposed Cop City Police Training Facility. Last week, we spoke with historian Joe Goldie about her Boston Review essay, The Earth for Man, Redistributing Land, was once central to global development efforts, and it should be today. The essay is adapted from her most recent book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. In that conversation, Joe gave us a history that is often forgotten, if not intentionally erased and denied. And that's the history of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, which was putting people before profits, specifically peasant farmers, over the entrance of markets and capital. Because of a 1943 famine in Bengal during British occupation and in the midst of the Second World War against German and Japanese imperialism, it had become clear to the world that no matter the empire, colonization and occupation were inhumane. So they actually asked peasants what they wanted and were crafting a new world filled with hope. Without that history, it's easy to believe such a program never happened especially when it was eventually abandoned by nations like the United States that eventually would put profits before people as they had so many times in their history. So the same can be said of the Stop Cop City protests. Yet these events being understood as unprecedented makes success even more challenging because activists have to imagine a world that has never before existed and have to invent a world anew. But like the FAO, this is very much a successful history of right. There is very much a successful history of rising up against a violent state that does nothing but protect the wealth of the already wealthy. And we'll find out how important the chaotic protester is to that potential success of actions like Stop Cop City. In a few minutes, it will be our distinct pleasure to speak with Miliaku Nwabweze, who wrote the Scalawag essay, How to Build the End of the World in Defense of the Chaotic Protester. According to her Scalawag bio, which is one of the best bios in the, I've ever read here on the show, but definitely the best one this year, Miliaku is a chaos orchestrator glitch enthusiast and constellation architect born in Detroit, rooted in Atlanta, but can be found tinkering away in the expanse of liminality. She is queer, black, and Igbo, and writes designs and dances towards the endings of the world. Relationships are her medium. See, I told you that's one of the best bios we've ever read on the show. Miliaku's website states that she is a transdisciplinary designer who bridges the gap between our politics and praxis by designing spaces, futures, and relationship goals. In her work, she has witnessed the potential of relationships to maintain the status quo and, more importantly, most importantly, to subvert it. In building consciousness around her blackness and queerness, she has developed tools and frameworks she hopes will help us deviate from reformist patterns and enter generative relationships with each other 
and all Earthlings. As a staunch abolitionist, she believes in rethinking everything and incorporates design methodologies into unmaking. Miliaku is an anti-disciplinary designer and writer who works at the intersections of things, the spaces in between them, and sometimes on things not yet here. Her scholastic research pursuits include mapping cycles of reform and using queerness, blackhood, and glitchiness to design pathways out. She is currently focused on using architecture's technology to change relationship structures, which is fascinating. Find out more about Miliaku at miliaku.com. Miliaku.com. That's M-I-L-I-A-K-U.com. Follow her on Instagram at Miliaku. Miliaku asks that you also contribute to the Atlanta Solidarity Fund to support the legal defense of forest defenders facing domestic terrorism charges, as we discussed on yesterday's show, and to learn more about the ongoing fight to stop Cop City and defend Atlanta's Wheelonee Forest by going to atlsolidarity.org. That's atlsolidarity.org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Daniel Kugler. Dan, Hey. how are you? Anything new about you? I just looked up an article that uh, popped up on the screen about beige flags. You heard of this? No, I have not. It's not a red flag. It's just a neutral sign. So if someone tells you, they don't like tomatoes, for example. <laughs> that would be a beige flag. Really? Yeah. I've never heard this term it's, before. Uh, it's front page news according to the internet. So. <laughs> well, if it's front page news on the internet, it must be important. Yes. What's, not by new, by, <laughs> what's new by me is Mel, the feral-ish barcat that lives in the tavern downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood recently overcame a respiratory infection, and we're all very happy about that. But now the poor little guy has ear mites. This means he not only needs to take meds twice a day that have been prescribed to him by a vet, but he also needs his ears cleaned twice a day. Pete, the owner of Carrie's Lounge, essentially Mel's dad, by the way, belated Happy Father's Day, Pete. No matter how hard you try, you still ended up being a father, granted of a cat, but still. Pete is so concerned, he comes over here every morning for Mel's first round of meds, hangs out a couple of hours to give, give him his second, and cleans Mel's ears, then comes back here late at night to give him more meds and sedatives. Yesterday was Mel's first day of getting ear medicine, so Pete requested some help, and if you think giving medicine to your cat or dog is difficult, try to do it with a semi-feral animal that kills and eats rats, and sometimes, apparently, Mel kills for fun as we have found whole or mostly whole dead rats and sparrows and pigeons, all of which, come to think of it, are invasive species, just like Mel. Far more important than any of that, Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience. How will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday? How will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday? This is your opportunity to say all sorts of nasty, horrible things about the nasty, horrible place that we know as McDonald's. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask. The coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. 
You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Dan, what is Jeff talking about this week during the Moment of Truth? Jeff will deliver part two of his essay on overweight space-time. We got an email from listener Bruce S., a recent winner of the question from hell. Bruce heard our call-out for submissions of art or music to be part of our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show opening. Bruce writes, Dear Chuck, I would like to offer a uh, work uh, which I have prepared for your art auction benefit, which I hope will be will in part offset my many years of listening to your show for free. The work is 16 inches by 24 inches on non-PVC poster material and is framed and glazed with preservation acrylic. With your approval, the work could be packaged and in the mail this week. May I add that your interview with Jennifer London regarding chronic fatigue syndrome was excellent. After living with chronic fatigue syndrome for over 40 years, I can say that she nails every every point and finally an apt critique of Descartes as well. Thank you, and best wishes, Bruce S. Bruce is in Fort Bragg, California, so I figured he was in the military. Then I looked at the images of his art, and they include phrases like expose a crime, go to jail, free mumia, free Peltier, and free Assange. And I thought, damn, this is a person in the United States military who is offering us protest art that demands the release of political prisoners have exposed the worst of the United States. That's when I found out that Fort Bragg is not only a military installation, but a city outside of the base with the same name. And it looks absolutely gorgeous on the Pacific Coast in uh, Mendocino County. Of course, every military installation is in some really high-priced real estate area. Uh, This is art is going up in a few weeks, Bruce, so I forwarded your email to the artist Lisa Barcy, who always curates our show because she's an absolutely wonderful human being. I know she has already signed up a lot of artists for the show, and if there's still wall space, look for Bruce's work possibly being part of this year's This Is Art show. Hugh left a comment at Discord about the recent interview that we did with Joe Goldie. Hugh writes, the Joe Goldie interview on land redistribution last week was excellent. It's a candidate for one of the best interviews of the year so far. Thanks for bringing them on the show. Thanks, Hugh. And it appears we have our first vote for our best interviews of 2023 to be played over the holidays during our two-week end-of-year break. If you hear an interview on the show and we're blown away by it, tell us, and there's a good chance we'll play it over the holidays. Also on Patreon... Erica reacted to our recent interview with Matt Mazuski on his Commonweal article, The Pandemic Isn't Over. Erica writes, thank you for your continued coverage of this, Chuck. Recently spoke to a group of friends, all of whom live in different parts of the United States, about how lonely it can feel being the only people in our respective families who are still masking, even in the case of family members who work in science, medicinal fields, and even when some of those family members are suffering the effects of long COVID. Been feeling it more acutely lately, this kind of discrimination against people who wear masks. This episode of your show came at a good time and made me feel a little more sane and less alone. And here's the real weird thing to me about being maskless. Dan Kugler, today's producer, mentioned last week that he was recently at Northwestern University Medical Center and he saw very few people masked, although Dan was. I have seen a surgeon and my doctor in the last two weeks and both times at Swedish Coven hospital here in Chicago. The only person I saw masked was my doctor 
and one of his nurses. That's it. None of the people at the desks, nobody anywhere, even my surgeon and her assistant were maskless. And all I can think of is if a new variant surges, somehow going to be even worse than 2020. You can contact us via email at chuckatthisishell.com. Send us a message via Facebook or via Twitter. Or you leave a comment on uh, Discord or if you're a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you do, we'll likely read whatever you've read or written to us on air. Coming up, Stop Cop City. We'll also have this week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell and nowhere is that coming more apparent than in Atlanta's forest, where the police have unlawfully arrested, abused, even killed a protester, all with the support of local government. But there is a way that the protests could still be a success, and are being a success. And not only for the people who live around or near what is being called Cop City, an urban warfare training base for local and potentially police departments for overseas, here to help us understand that there is a history of successful activism and how it can be done, and a lot more about Stop, uh, Cop City, Miliaku Nwabweze wrote the Scalawag essay, How to Build the End of the World in Defense of the Chaotic Protester. Welcome to This Is Hell, Miliaku. Thank you so much for having me. Your introduction was so gracious. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And to, I would, if you don't mind me being a little bit more gracious. Oh, boy. Okay. Mo- most beautiful name we've had on the show in decades. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's Ibo. It means... Um, like water of wealth, fountain of wealth. Like I have wealth that flows like the river, but not monetary wealth. It's like abundance is the idea. See, that's really cool. My name is Charles Mertz. You know what that means? <laughs> that means King Merchant. <laughs> Wait, how did I know that um, Charles meant King? I don't know how I picked up on it's that. It's from one. Charlemagne. Oh. Which is even worse. And Mertz oh. is just a store owner. What the oh. hell? Oh, uh, <laughs> does not make me happy. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Shout out to my to my grandmother in Ganmezi. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so like you write of a potential police raid on the Stop Cop City protesters on July fourth. I think this is a really interesting thought exercise that you have at the beginning. You write that despite desperate attempts to portray otherwise, the protests protesters uh, did not want this facility. When the police raided the forest to attack hundreds of protesters, they failed to see that the people were their own. How would the police, how, how would the police, the people the police would be attacking, how would they be their own? And what does that say to you about policing when they will attack their own and not recognize them as their own? Mm. You know, I think this this gets at like a thought exercise I did while I was in graduate school where I kind of was like, oh, we have a world without so forgive me for being crass, but I was like, if we have a world without pr- prisons and a world without police, who in your family would need to die? And I think what I, <laughs> I understand how intense of a question that is, but I think what I was trying to get at with that question wasn't necessarily shock value, but to bring home that a lot of these people in uniform who are harming people, who will kill Tortuguita, right? They have family members, right? They're they in our family. I have family members who are in law enforcement. Um, I have two, right? So 
it's not just about this idea of like this far out idea of like the police, the police, like these are our brothers, these are our cousins, these are these are our sons, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and we need to understand that they no longer become that when they put on the uniform. They're not going to listen to us. They're not, you know, no, they're not going to help us. They're not going to heed our needs. And I think um, it's kind of a way of throwing the dehumanization um, that they sort of inflict on us back in their face. Like you cannot be human to do this to people. Um, it, what happened to Tortuguita makes no sense. 54 bullet wounds in the body. This is this is a dehumanization of your own self, I think, um, is sort of what I'm trying to get at with that. So that, that I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I hope you can help me out with this. Uh, the phrase, all cops are bad, I completely understand. But it's it, sometimes I, I think that that might be just a little bit reductivist in that it is yeah. blaming the single person who's the police officer and not policing. That policing has made this person into who they are. are. Mm-hmm. So is all cops are bad, do you think that in any way distracts us, in any way distracts us from the inherent problems of policing in general? I think if it did, um, you know, the words good and bad, are like it depends on who you ask, right? All cops are bad for who? I think um, for poor black and brown people, we've seen that that's, that yes, it's it's evident uh, that all cops are bad. But I think in the, in the, if you think it's bad to kill and murder and, and displace people, um, but I think you're kind of making a point of like, what does policing do, right? I think um, a lot of times we use bad and good for for stand-ins and I, I don't tend to argue about what's bad or good. I'm arguing about what's happening, right? So I know that there were, again, 54 bullet wounds in people's bodies. I know that there were mothers and grandmothers at a music festival who were tackled by the police. I know that there were three uh, people who who ran a bail fund who had a raid on their house um, with a SWAT team with with AK-47s pulled. Uh, bad or good, I mean, we can argue that all day, but if this is a thing that we think should be happening, might be a better question, um, might be a more nuanced question. Um, I think we kind of hear this argument where it's like not the system, it's the people. And this kind of gets into what you were touching on when you were like looking at my architecture work. Um, I think it's both. I don't think it's one or the other. I think they kind of work together, but I do know that a system can be hijacked when we no longer feel, fulfill our roles in that system. If you look at the architecture of a, of a prison, you know, sort of broken, broken down by Foucault as delivered to him by Angela Davis from George Jackson, um, and he was able, you know, to sort of break down the, the panopticon and um, the structure of a prison, you know, you have where the warden sits, you have the inmate in a cell. If the inmate refuses to remain caged, the system doesn't work, does it? If the if the guards refuse to cage the inmate, the system doesn't work, does it? So at a point, I think we need to contend that when we try to try to emphasize, oh, it's the system of something, that there are people who are filling in those spots in those systems that are making these decisions every day, which is why relationships are the playground for revolution. I saw you bring that out of my bio. Um, because we have opportunities to make decisions collectively. It's not just like on me, right? I need somebody to make a decision to, I need somebody to enact my politics towards, right? It's not that I can just be something onto myself that that doesn't exist. Um, I think uh, 
yeah i guess that's my point is that it's, it's it's the system but people in the system make these decisions that's an amazing answer i always love when we have a guest on and while they're responding to a question i'm actually learning like that's the whole goal of this show so i really that's just fantastic so you right this has not happened yet but i gift you this about this potential protest uh, raid on july 4th this has not happened yet but i gift you this fictional narrative anyway because we owe each other the indeterminate which is a quote from the Undercommons, uh, Fugitive Planning and Black Study, a collection of essays by black study scholars Fred Moten and Stefano uh, Harney. You add, the indeterminate is the gift of the chaotic protester who roots us in an unpredictable journey to a place we cannot determine, track, or capture. The indeterminate will save the cop, Stop Cop City movement from elite capture, continue the black radical tradition, all in uh, capitalized, and sal- uh, salvage it from the stutter of cowardly imaginations. Why does the indeterminate, the chaotic protesters, save not only Stop Cop City, but any movement from capture by elites, from co-optation by the powerful? I think because the indeterminate moves us forward into a space that we've never been, and that is the Black radical tradition. I mean, we have to be kind of honest with ourselves, right? So Um, You know, voting rights is all the rage these days, but we won technically the right to vote over 100 years ago. You know, like I, I, and then we had the voting right. We did all this time, money, and energy into passing the Voting Rights Act, right? Of like 1965, or I can't remember the year. And then, you know, and then the indeterminate happens, right? You have, after the, the death of MLK, you have the strengthening of like Black radicals who are like, okay, we have no other choice but confrontation, right? No, I don't think anyone could have seen that coming. And then we also have 2020. I don't think anyone could have seen that coming. And then people respond by like offloading resources, offloading resources, and then redirecting us. And then somehow we're back at voting rights. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Juneteenth just happened yesterday, right? You know, you have slaves that are freed from a plantation, right? And then and then where do we end up? I think one of my favorite scholars, um, she goes by Ra, Rebecca Ann Wilcox. She calls, you know, we're still black in the hold. She she has this beautiful quote. She says that the plantation is anywhere there are slaves, right? And I think what ancestors in this country have given us is they've not only shown us that we're still on a plantation of sorts, but they've acted in ways that we could not predict that were not affirmed by the status quo, right? John Lewis would not approve of this type of trouble, so to speak, um, that have actually been attempts at freedom that have actually broken through what Joy James calls the womb of Western theory, right? That have actually begun to break those bars down. And a lot of these things we cannot determine, right? And I think we, we've gotten to this stutter of like, okay, though this happened, so we have to do what they did because they, they did it. They didn't do that. They did what was never done. And I think we owe it to ourselves to resituate ourselves within that tradition so that we can actually build a better world, build a different world, build a divergent world, if not a way out for our children. Um, I think that's why I love that quote by Fred Moten. Like we owe the things that we cannot know are happening, that we cannot determine are happening. And that was also in response to a lot of critiques of direct actions that were happening um, throughout the movement that people didn't know would happen. And there was this constant question of safety and I'm like, what? They killed somebody in this forest. They shot, I, I cannot, I still cannot wrap my head. I mean, how can you wrap your head, head around it? You watch somebody's mother scatter their ashes in a forest. Um, 
and you think you're, you could be safe there? I, 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 I don't, um, I don't understand how that was something that popped into people's mind. And so that quote, which I think is so powerful, um, we owe the things, we owe things to each other that we cannot determine will happen. Um, I think it's sort of a, sort of a push back into the lineage of that tradition into, into, into just like going crazy, doing things that we cannot um, determine the outcomes of trying new things. Right. Cause we actually know how dealing with the state and like using their channels of so-called change will go. Right. I mean, there, there's the referendum right now and I'm not knocking the referendum. Everybody can do whatever it is they want to do. It's a decentralized movement, but the city was supposed to approve it weeks ago. They had a seven day deadline. I think we're like four or five days past that deadline. And now people have to sue the city to like, to, to, to accept the referendum for, for something to go through a democratic process for the democratic approval or disapproval of this building of this facility. And I don't know why people won't accept the mirage. They won't accept the sham. I mean, we say, you know, we are what we depend on. We are what we have, but then we keep running to the state and filtering um, our movements through its channels of so-called change. I don't know what we expect the outcome will be. I mean, I, I think we, we know what the outcome will be, and that is why we owe each other the indeterminate. But the indeterminate, as you know, uh, not, you know, it would not be covered well in the media. The media insists on actually knowing every step that the protests, when Occupy Wall Street happened, ABC uh, News went out to interview people and they said, they, first they said, who is your leader? We'd like to speak to your leader. We, right. are, we are a leaderless movement. What are your demands? We do not have demands. Everything that they were doing didn't fit within the way that media wants a protest to be set up. So how much does an indeterminate protester undermine the message that possibly the protesters want to get out to the media? Because within that media framework, is can the indeterminate undermine the ability for the general public to accept a protest because of the way that the media covers protests? I think that's a great question, Chuck, but I kind of, I don't know I have a satisfying answer. I think that the, I don't know that we'll win the the mass media argument. I don't know that CNN, CNN wasn't reporting that the police were coming into the forest every day before they arrested, I was like 40 something people charged with domestic terrorism now. Like they weren't reporting that. The media wasn't reporting, except I think um, the uh, John, uh, what is it? Today show or the night show, one of those shows um, did report it, Trevor Noah's show. Um, the media wasn't reporting that the police were cutting down trees like in half so that they would fall on protesters. The media is not going to report facts. I think we need to disabuse ourselves of that idea altogether. The media is not going to paint a movement to bring down capitalism, to stop uh, the terrorizing of uh, police, terrorizing people, the people who shot are live 50 miles away from where they shot, you know, like these real outside agitators, as um as uh, Pastor KJ calls them, you know, like the media isn't gonna is ever gonna report in our favor. The media, we, I mean, it sounds like conspiracy theory, like I'm in somebody's like back room or something. But we know who owns the media. Like we we've seen the infographics on Instagram. It's not it's not a co copy and paste thing. And I think what happens when you canvass a neighborhood? What happens when you talk to your dance troupe about it? What happens when you're chatting with strangers at a bar? Is that the media actually doesn't influence people as much as you think they do, right? And I think that I kind of write about this in the article. I touch on it in two ways. The first way is uh, kind of bringing in this Fanonian discourse 
that Jack Halberstam and Jack Halberstam's like introduction to the Undercommons essay, um, where it's like, yeah, like why would we want to look sane? We're not gonna look sane if we're if we're actually challenging the structures that exist, right? To your point, we're not gonna fit into who's the leader, what's it this, what's your campaign strategy, who's the organization. We're not gonna fit into that, right? Because it's not about becoming an organization that becomes a business and a five hundred one c three that the the I'm not going to name the foundations, but we know who they are, fund into oblivion, right? It's it's about changing the way we live every day with each other. Like, you know, the, the Gil Scott Heron quote, the revolution will not be televised because the revolution will be mundane. It's going to be every day, baby. It's going to, we're going to, every our every day will change. Maybe we don't get up and, and drive an hour and back to work every day. Maybe the labor will have to be figuring about how to fight with each other because we have we have a major disagreement about how we need to plant the 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 garden or the that we're going to be eating out of right. I think um, that's going to look crazy to a lot of people. <laughs> like I I don't think that the goal here is to look sane, and I don't think the media is ever going to portray us as sane unless we're falling in line with the structures that they're looking for in order to and I use this word so intentionally capture us. Um, I think the second way that I sort of touch on this is like not just using media channels to inform people about our movements. I think it's really important to be sitting down and talking to people. I think it becomes really different when you they see the news story and they're like, oh no, my hairdresser talked to me about this. Or I was talking to some girl in the salon. I was talking to somebody at Best Buy. Somebody knocked on my door and we had a conversation. I met somebody in the park across the street from Thomasville Elementary that has been closed by the city because apparently they have enough money for, sorry, got to slide this one in for, for bombing fields, but you know, not schools for children. Uh, with uh, That's a whole nother story for another day. I think it becomes, I don't think we're going to win the, the media fight because that's not what they're there for. But what we can win is on the ground, right? And that's where we are. And I think if we just stay there, I think that's a very, I think it's coherent strategy. That That's really interesting that personal relationships have more of an impact than uh, we would think that CNN or Fox News or whatever media outlet has. That's a really interesting point because that does, that has a greater effect on you. Like you were saying, if you're talking to, uh, you, you go to the hairdresser and you're talking to the hairdresser, you're stopped in a, gro- you know, you're in the grocery line, you start talking to the clerk and they talk to you about that. That has a greater effect than, I, I truly agree with you. That is a greater effect than any CNN story has. You write that mass media has continued the work to delineate between peaceful and violent protesters uh, with sprinklings of the outside agitators to maintain a ruse of democracy and progress while fooling you into thinking protesters threaten them. Violent protesters are simply people who protest. So how do we understand protest and protesters differently when we see them not as violent and peaceful, but all is simply protesters. How do even protesters view themselves differently when they understand that there are not these differentiated groups of peaceful and violent protesters, but all are committed to protest? Mm. That's a good sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I think this touches back touches back to the, the Fanonian discourse of like, I've heard people who are part of the movement sort of speaking to this thing of like, oh, we don't want a violent protest or this isn't going to be an active action or this isn't going to be. So I'm like, oh, it's not going to be a protest <laughs> because what what exactly are you are you saying? I think what I'm sort of critiquing there is the the quickness with which we just accept, excuse me, the state's narrative, right? Like 
uh, of violent versus nonviolent protests, people weren't necessarily, like people were talking about peaceful protests, but this like very, very clear delineation of like, oh, we bad protesting and good protesting. I, I, I don't really understand why that's become so, such a popular way to, to talk about it. Um, I think it's kind of weird because it's like, you, you know, we had three people arrested for 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 allegedly i'm not sure what was happening i don't know you know this is not i wasn't there right but allegedly pro, like postering putting up posters about who tortuguita's murderers were um you have to really then ask yourself if you can be arrested for postering or attending a uh music concert or passing out you know hundreds of pounds of food every week what uh <laughs> what's what's really the benefit of your so-called uh, uh how you see peaceful protesting i i don't um i don't really understand what it is people see i mean we saw it in 2020 people were walking down the street and they were shot at with rubber bullets and bean bags and tear gassed um i don't understand I, I don't know what's peaceful about that um I think I, at the beginning of the story, I sort of give the General Mashesha story because it's like peace is something that is forged. Uh, I don't know that we'll have peaceful anything until we forge it. And I think this idea of destroying equipment or like taunting people being seen as violent has got to go. Because again, back to the media, they're not calling the police violent. They're not speaking to the raids in which people will probably spend their entire lives needing to get therapy to heal from violent. They're not calling the torture and damnation, putting people in solitary confinement for allegedly, again, pa passing out flyers, violent, right? They're not, they're not actually calling the abuse and misuse and attack on human beings violent. They're calling, they, I guess, allegedly some, some, some equipment. I don't know what the mayor was talking about. One of his interviews got set on fire. That's what they're calling violent. You have got to be fucking kidding me. And I think we need to really check our standpoints when we fall into that logic. I think, uh, you know, something that I and other, a lot of like Afro-pessimists that I admire, um, T. Trotman being, who edited this article, brilliant, brilliant uh, scholar and thinker. Um, Deshaun Barber, I don't know if you if you know them. Um, kind of like bringing in this point that we're at war. I I don't know what I don't know what peace will have unless unless we win it. And we're not just fighting for our lives and our safety. We're fighting for the for the for the for the environment. And we're fighting for a chance to have a life and safety. Right. We in order to live, we need a place. So I think, um, just coming out of that standpoint altogether, be it, no matter how crazy it looks, is really important when it comes to categorizing protests. And you uh, you were mentioning Jack Halberstrom earlier. You write the women, gender, and sexuality scholar Jack Halberstrom's introductory essay in Fred Moten and Stefano uh, Harney's Undercommons reviews the Fanonian roots of a dichotomy between rational and crazy, which are perhaps subconscious synonyms for violent and nonviolent. That's Fanonian, as in Franz Fanon, the uh, 20th century political philosopher. If rational and crazy are synonymous with violent and nonviolent, 
Is so-called peaceful protest accepted as a rational response by the public in redressing their grievances? But violence at a protest is intolerable as it is nothing more than an act of insanity by unstable people. Does the violent peaceful protest framework promote the tolerance for and normalization of a disproportionate police response to protest by the state and law enforcement? So you're asking, like, does the destruction of equipment therefore scaffold or warrant the violent responses from police? Not not necessarily warrant it, but is that it does it allow for it when in the public's and the media's eye? Uh, uh, allow for the justification of it? Exactly. I, mean, I might have thought so at first, but then in actually talking to people, people were actually super mind blown. I mean, and I, I, I even think that like, you know, I was even surprised to read you know, Warnock's statement, um, I'm not giving him any props because whatever, but um, like where he's like, okay, this domestic violence thing, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, like I think, rest, I mean, some people were like, ooh, arresting, me ran arresting random people. I don't know that this, I don't actually think it looked good for them. <laughs> I don't actually think it played in their favor at all um, in the eye of public opinion. I might've thought uh, beforehand, I might've said, no, I could see how, you know, I'm being real. Like I could see how that might not play, um, play in the public's favor. But I think people were kind of like, I don't know, that seems a little bit unlawful. <laughs> like, you know, and I think, um, I think, I, yeah, I was surprised, but um, I could see how one would make the argument. I just don't, I think that the veil is of the mirage um, and the performance is like becoming more and more and more clear to more and more people. Um, Stop Cop City is global, baby. So I think, um, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, I don't think people see it as justified. I think people see it as as um, I guess the best way I would summarize it is childish because that's what it was. It was a temper tantrum. But we can also see that they were geared up and ready to go. I mean, there, were, there was already a helicopter in the sky. They had been surveilling people sitting down and having meals, you know, in a forest for, uh, you know, I don't know how long. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, and I think people see it as that. I mean, even in when I go into, into wealthy neighborhoods and I'm like, yeah, you know, Stop Cop City, just getting some stuff for my, my dog. And they're like, yo, those cops, they like, pointed a gun at my friend, you know, he was just fishing in the forest. And now, he, you know, he, he's traumatized for life because he almost lost, lost his life. And my other friend got arrested. And, you know, I think people are seeing it for what it is. Bullshit. Like, I, I, I don't think that they're winning the media war even. So we are speaking with Miliaku Nwabweze, who wrote the Scalawag essay, How to Build the End of the World in Defense of the Chaotic Protester. You can find out more about Miliaku at M-I-L-I-A-K-U.com, Miliaku.com, and follow her on Instagram at Miliaku. Uh, we, so, uh, again, you quote Halberstrom writing, uh, Fred Moten reminds us that even as Fannin took uh, an anti-colonial stance, he knew that it looks crazy, but Fannin, as a psychiatrist, also knew not to accept this organic division between the rational and the crazy, and he knew that it would be crazy for him not to take that stance in a world that had assigned to him the role of the unreal, the primitive, and the wild. So, mm -hmm. so is appropriate what, you know, people would consider, I should say, the media or the police or the state is what they would consider appropriate protest 
ineffective. And if it is ineffective, is that why peaceful, appropriate protest is promoted by both the state and the media? Because it is ineffective. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that one's a short answer. It was a good question. <laughs> it didn't give me any time to take a note down. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you also mentioned that uh, this is the trap we fall into as it creates the logic of a peaceful protester. Should the goal of a protest be mass acceptance. After all, isn't that what the purpose of protest is, to get a demand to be accepted by not only the public, but the state and the vast majority of it? Shouldn't the goal of a protest to be mass acceptance and what happens when it isn't? No, I think what happens when the goal of a protest is to be mass acceptance and you have Target having billboards of like, we support Black Lives, like, even though, you know, Black death is an ongoing everyday thing, you know, like, that's what mass acceptance looks like. We know what it looks like. No, that should not be the goal of anyone's protest. It should not be to be able to have a billboard section in Target. Like, I don't, <laughs> I, I, absolutely not. I don't think so. I think um, my, my, I used to dance in a dance company in, in college and the the creative director of the dance company, Adenike Sharpley, um, a brilliant mind, brilliant creative. Um, I still think about her choreography. Uh, just brilliant, a staple of the West African dance community. She said something to me that's probably going to stick with me till I die, and I probably will repeat it till I die, um, that it takes as many people to stage a successful revolution that fit into a into a buggy. And, and I think we have this idea um, that opened my mind so much because so much of my being had been about, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Black girl from Detroit, right? So so much of my being had been about inclusion and getting into the right programs and getting into the right schools and becoming, you know, white enough, um, to be frank, um, in order to position myself within the structure until within the white supremacist structures for monetary and economic capitalist success, right? Um, and I think um, coming out of that has taught me so, so much about how much work we do and really don't even need to, to be acceptable, but to whom, right? How can I be fighting white supremacy when I'm fashioning my whole self to be acceptable to white supremacy? So I would scale that up. How can you fashion a meaningful movement against white supremacy, colonialism, and slavery when you're trying to be palpable to people who believe and scaffold those things? I don't know. I don't, it's never been done. Uh, and and um, I don't think it ever will be. Um, I think uh, we have to understand, in order to appease to white people, right, I had to dress, I had to become a certain way. And so in order for a movement to appease to white supremacy, it too would need to become a certain way. And that way would be not potent to the thing that it's trying to destroy, which is why we've been caught in a stutter of reform. And so that's, to bring it back to the beginning of the interview, we owe each other the indeterminate. We owe it to each other to continue in the black radical tradition of innovation, truly innovative ways of getting people to, if not getting people to it, yeah, maybe we can't all be Moses, right? <laughs> but, but if we ourselves, right? Like I always say, we are the project. If we ourselves know that we don't believe in this, then we ourselves can fashion a world, you know, that we will have to defend as we've seen, like, for example, the MOVE organization have to do, even though they were bombed into oblivion, we have to like learn from them and maybe hope to avoid that. But I don't know how that's gonna be possible with Atlanta police practicing how to set off bombs. That's neither here nor there. But um, 
we owe it to ourselves to to be in the world we want to be with each other. And I think we're failing at it. I'm so sorry. Like, I don't think we're being honest about it. Like, we'll say things like there's no such thing as cancel culture. There is. There is. In abolitionist movements, right? I think... Um, I think we also do that within our movements to avoid having to be quote unquote violent. Like some people just need to be jumped. I'm sorry. Like I, I'm not sorry though, you know, but that doesn't mean they need to be completely and totally ostracized for the rest of their lives. Who are you if you're exiling people? Like, I, I, I really think that we, you know, they say build it and they will come. We're, we're trying to convince people of a world. We're not actually taking on the labor to build ourselves. What? What are we waiting for? What we need all these people for? If we're drinking clean water, let's sit here and drink our clean water. Why we got to bring everybody to the stream all the time? You know what I mean? Yes, I do. That is an excellent way to phrase it. Hey, so how much? What do you think is the likelihood that what's happening in Atlanta's forest, what's happening with Stop Cop City, is going to end the way that the situation happened with the Move Project in Philadelphia? Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, if Stop Cop City is bombed into oblivion, I mean, it would. I hope it doesn't catch fire to the to the rest of the forest, and I hope it all the neighborhoods are um, safe, because uh, that's a risk, right? When you have bombs setting off, and I don't know how. I don't. I, don't, I just don't know how this is a logical project to anyone. <laughs> um, Philadelphia's mayor didn't seem to care. Yeah, and I don't think Andre Dickens would either. He'd say, "Whoops." <laughs> We we were we were prioritizing public safety as if like using that money to get people resources so they wouldn't need to go find ways to go get them themselves wouldn't prioritize public safety like every other academic article says it would but um, neither here nor there um, um, obviously I have a bone to pick with the mayor <laughs> he's appointed honestly I'm sorry he he's a sellout of sellouts um, no respect for him whatsoever. Um, but I, I, I tend not to, uh, I tend not to like play, you know, it's the indeterminate to me. It's not so important. It is important, right? It is obviously it's important. It's why I'm on this call that we win in the way that it looks like we win and the facility doesn't get built right? Even though they've already cleared the forest. And I hope it doesn't get built. And it shouldn't get built. This is ludicrous. You I don't. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I would think it was a win if we delivered the indeterminate. And that I think, I think everything is possible, right? Um, if we can fashion technology that can read my brain waves and come out with sentences, we can deliver the indeterminate. I have no doubt in my mind that that is a high possibility, but I tend not to really dibble dabble in uh, in predictions. Um, uh, it's all possible. <laughs> yeah. When we have economists on the show, when we have, uh, they say, "Don't ask me about how I should invest my money or how mm. the economy is going to go into the future." When they have historians on the show, and we ask them, well, "How do you think it's going to be in the future?" They're like, "Oh my God, I'm a historian. Please don't make me make a prediction on the show." So I totally understand. You can uh, you continue quoting Halberstam. I want to make sure we get to this point. When you cite uh, his writing, uh, Fanon, according to Moton, uh, wants not the end of colonialism, but the end of the standpoint from which colonialism makes sense. So. So is that the true goal of protest? Not to force a demand, but 
but to change the environment in which the injustice being protested makes sense. With Stop Cop City, is it not only to stop the building of the police training center, but also to stop the logic that's led to these training centers popping up around the United States and moneyed interests rewarding cities, uh, the building of these massive police training centers with higher credit ratings. Is Stop Cop City about stopping the logic of all cop cities everywhere? And if they're successful in Atlanta, that does not mean the end of this movement. I love your energy, Chuck. <laughs> um, I think... Um, I, I hesitate to speak for the Stop Cop City movement, but I would say that that would be a win. If we start to get people, I think um, I think I, there's a sentence I have in the article where I said, we keep trying to a fight, uh, fight a power from the standpoint of its, of its episteme. And I think it would be a win if this movement ignited movements across the world where people did not fight the power from the standpoint of that power's episteme. Um, and I, I'm speaking specifically about colonial powers. Um, what does it look like to uninhabit that way of thinking altogether? And what does the uninhabiting of that thinking allow to emerge and make possible? I don't wanna determine that for everybody. Um, because I want it to be like, you know, like, uh, what's his name? Arturo Escobar. I want it to be like the pluriverse. That's a, it's a really beautiful vision, I think, for the world. And I don't think it's like, a, I don't think it's that far off. I think it, I think, uh, yeah, what's David Wingrow and um, Graeber get at that in their 750 page book of gloriousness. It should low-key be the new Bible. Um, what, what is that called, book called? Uh, I have it here. The dawn of everything. No, um, yeah. That there have always been a multitude of worlds, and there still are. Like what we're fighting for exists. There are worlds without prison. I study them, right? Um, that exist today where people don't have prisons and don't have states. Like what is a nomad, right? I think um, it would be a lot of work because I think we don't always see ourselves coming from that episteme, but um, if the, the stop cop movement, stop cop city movement was able to break people from that, yeah, I would consider that success isn't even the word. I would consider that within the tradition of the, uh, within the lineage of the black radical tradition. David Graeber was a big supporter of our show, and he was on our show several times and uh, really just a great person. And anybody who wants to find out uh, any more about David Graeber, they can go to our website, thisishell.com. Search on his last name, Graeber, and you can find all the interviews that we did with him absolutely free. So Miliaku is the chaotic protester, one that remembers history, one that remembers the black radical mm. tradition and experiments rather than the one that simply imagines a future that has never happened. Is the chaotic protester the more practical, even pragmatic, despite being chaotic? Are they not dreamers, but doers, not protest in theory, but practice? Oh, you got these good questions. I had to take notes to capture them. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um, I think it's chaos. It's all of those things, right? I think, I think a lot. I sometimes I believe that the people with the strongest visions are the people who are willing to fight the hardest, right? Experiment the most, right? I think. Uh, 
I think I always pragmatism is such a funny word because people are like, be practical. This is the world. I'm like, what? Be practical. We don't have clean water. What do you mean? <laughs> like, be pra- what? What? How is fighting not the practical choice? They're about to charge us for air. What? What do you mean? Be practical. You see where the world is headed? Be practical. I, we won't have a place to live if we destroy the earth. Be pragmatic. Like, I think uh, I love The Handmaid's Tale for this reason, because it kind of flashes back to this point where June's like going about her life, business as usual, falling within the systems before like the this massive uh, uh, revolution uh, uh, where fascists, eco-fascists take over and turn them into birthing machines or whatever. And it's like, yeah, no, everyone would be like, please be practical, you know, be practical. Other people in this world with quote unquote, uh, quote unquote crazy, because they're not crazy, right? They're right in the lineage of of colonialism are not. I mean, they thought they were going to take over the United States government by storming the Capitol. I don't this is uh, (laughs) I don't know what people think is going to. I think we need to uh, rethink what it means to be pragmatic and practical. And I would say that the, the chaotic protester has taken that on for sure. So you write that Cap City is a project that seeks to restore and maintain order following the 2020 uprisings, is defended by the full force of the state. It is intended to preserve. This deems anyone who declares their opposition to the facility an enemy, making every tactic deployed against the bombing grounds the state seeks to build upon unmarked graves of prisoners subject to the full force of state violence. The state has made its alignment clear. If you are against the facility, you are an enemy. So this brings us back to a conversation we've met, touched on so many times on our show. And that's back in November. We were speaking with this story in Austin McCoy. And he had an article, I believe it was at Baffler. Yeah, it was at the Baffler. And it was about maybe Boston Review. I can't remember. Anyway, it was about the unassailable relationship between the police and the state. The police are the state. Is that the relationship Stop Cop City is trying to end? And the idea that relationship makes sense. Like the Stop Cop City movement? Yeah. Is that what they're, is that like the bigger picture thing? To stop that unassailable relationship between police and who are supposed to be our democratically elected representatives? Yeah, but I think we can just um, throw that one out the window. I think we can let it go. I think because uh, I don't know I don't know how I don't know how you can think you have a democracy when you have you know twelve plus hours of one day and seventeen hours the next day of whatever of people saying they don't want something and then you vote it through and you call it democracy this uh, this and that we're all getting along and we're trying to reunite people please 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 please, please spit in somebody else's face I I think we should let that one go uh, completely but um, you know. There's this inter- I can't remember the name of this scholar, oh, and a beautiful Afroposimist, but I saw him speak at the Auburn Avenue Library. And he said something that really stuck with me many years ago. He was like, you know, people do see themselves as the state, and that's why they hold it up, because they see themselves as people who stand to benefit from the toils of spoils of capitalist warfare. And he was like, you know, it's evidence in our language. We were in Iraq for soldiers who for people who were never soldiers, people who never went to, even been to that region of the world are saying things like we are in Iraq. Who? You? You are not in Iraq. So it's very like interesting how people see themselves as part of the state. And I think the police do too. Which is why they protect the state. But it's interesting. I think I actually are working on a book right now actually fun fact. And in that book I make the case that police are technology. 
um, that they are not people, that they are tools. I have a, I had an uncle who was a, who was a radical. I'll just leave it at that. And he, you know, I hope he rests over the wounds of the regime with David Graeber, but he would say, you know, he would go through a line of logic about how the state was thinking and how people would fight with the state and every line of logic within, well, that's what the police are for, you know? And I, and I think um, the police are tools of the state. Um, they are part of the state apparatus, um, but they are tools of the state, which Dick Graeber, you know, in the other book, Debt, teaches us is inseparable from markets. So the state and the wealthy, uh, uh, which, you know, I guess I, I'm making that distinction rhetorically, we know are inseparable. Um, but uh, I don't think... I think I don't think I necessarily disagree with the idea that the police are the state. I don't think it matters. Uh, I just think that it's very intentional to see that this is what the state is using. And if it wasn't technology, then they wouldn't be able to be replaced by technology with these like what seventy k. It's more important to spend seventy thousand dollars on a shooting robot dog, you know, with Bluetooth controller, because that'll go well, right? <laughs> we can't get the trains to run in New York City on time, but we can get a $70,000 remote control gun, right? Ro gun robot, right? Okay, artificial, whatever. You know, um, that at, at that point in time, it won't be people who are just thinking twice, you know, necessarily. That will be somebody in a room controlling a robot killing people, and then that will obscure things. So I think of the police uh as 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 technology yeah i i'd like to say so much more about that but i'm i'm trying to keep it short well when that book comes out we will have you on the show you <laughs> contact us immediately do you know do you have a publisher i am i am wanting i'm should i put this out i want common notions to publish it <laughs> oh really awesome yeah uh, we, that is my dream yeah that'd be awesome that'd be great so when that happens and i know it's going to happen uh, we were going to want you back on the show. You're right. The Cop City Camp has made it evident that the state's alignment with the training facilities development is unwavering, despite it now being a place of literally practicing killing people. As The Guardian reported this past Friday, a broad coalition of groups in Atlanta has launched a referendum to give voters a chance to say whether they want the controversial police and fire department training center known as Cop City, built in the forest southeast of the city. The effort requires organizers to collect about 70,000 signatures from Atlanta's uh, registered voters in 60 days. Then the question of the city canceling its agreement with the Atlanta Police Foundation to build the $90 million center can be added to municipal elections ballots in November. Can a referendum, and within, you know, the way that government is structured, the way that our society is, I shouldn't say that, the way that our government is structured today, can a referendum, and only a referendum, stop Cop City and break that alignment of the state with the construction of the police training center? Is that the only way it can be stopped, other than violence by the police? I have a, a good friend uh, who I won't say his name because I don't know that he wants to be associated with me because he has a little bit of clout, but he always says, uh, oh, there's never one reason for anything, you know? And I think in the same way, when we use the word only, I kind of think of that, of that sort of like uh, offering, I'll call it. I think there's, there's rarely ever, if ever one way to do anything. Um, maybe we just haven't figured the other ways out yet, but I think just thinking about how we washed our clothes 80 years ago versus how we 
I watch them now. Um, there's never one way to do anything, right? I think this is the task and will be the gift from the chaotic protester that they will show that there is not, the referendum is in fact not the only way to stop Cop City. Um, and I, like I said at, at the beginning of this call, like they're already blocking the referendum. Um, this is in a state where um, the governor was uh, secretary of state and therefore oversaw the election and would not step down to be in the, like still ran the election and like just basically didn't count votes for Stacey Abrams. Like I, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't really, I don't know what Stacey Abrams would be doing right now, but, and I don't know that it would look that very, that different from Kip. It might sound different. I, I don't necessarily have my faith there, but we have like stolen election from Stacey Abrams, basically, right? And I, I so I, I, voting in Georgia is funny. And this is, you know, closing voting centers in democratic strongholds or places where there are a lot of black and poor people. I, you know, we have to really, even if it gets on the ballot um, in, the, in the city of Atlanta, I don't know, I don't have a lot of faith in the integrity of our voting system either. Um, and it's not just in, oh, they're going to like rig the election and not count votes and sway votes. It's not just that fear. It's also how they disseminate misinformation, right? Um, I think it's like when you can have Julian Bond say something so heinously stupid, like, oh, I voted for this facility so Atlanta will have the civil right to safety. Safety from... But when the people who are keeping them safe are killing them, I, I just it was like, what? But not civil rights to food and shelter because you keep busing people out of the city, like what? <laughs> like not you close and condemn housing and manifest, uh, not manifest this is it imminent imminent domain all over the city? Like what civil rights? Like what? Are you are you kidding me? People are losing their insurance because all this uh, pavement is going to cause more flooding. I don't. I think I don't have much faith in in that process. Uh, and I know it's not the only way to stop something. I know it's not the only way to push the needle and move forward because I it's been the case. Like back to pragmatism, let's look at the facts. It has that is not what stopped this facility from being constructed for two years, right? It was not going through those channels that has halted this project for two years. One last question for you, Miliaku. Absolutely loved this relationship. I love talking to somebody who, like myself, was born in Detroit. I really, it's always great to hear. Uh, so, Miliaku Noboisi wrote the Scalawag wow. essay, How to Build the End of the World in Defense of the Chaotic Protester. Yeah, I was born over on, like, uh, just across the street from uh, Gross Point Woods, I think, Six Mile in okay. Maross. And my okay. grandmother lived over on uh, Chalmers and Mac. I used to spend my entire childhood over at her home. It was really great. Yes. Where are you from? What part of Detroit? I grew up on 12 Mile and Losser. Oh, no uh, kidding. Yeah, but I went to, I went, my mom taught at Mumford. I went to Bates. I very much spent a lot of time in the city proper. Um, yeah, I was yeah, in that super town. racist town, East Detroit. Holy yeah. crap. <laughs> what a nightmare that place was. Oh, my God. They changed their name to East Point, you know, because uh, yes. that's the shape of their hoods. Yes. Oh, wow. Whoa. <laughs> I thought it was just to get away from the city. Oh, I thought that's what I was going to say. That's just like every, I, I always get these complaints from people when I tell them about the, uh, the drive, you know, the, the cruise on Woodward Avenue. And I said on the show a few years ago that it was a reenactment of white flight. And I got in a lot of grief from white Detroiters. 
So I got one last question for you, Miliaku, and we do this with all of our guests. Miliaku Nwezi wrote the Scalawag essay, How to Build the End of the World in Defense of the Chaotic Protester. So you write that it is evident that the Cop City Project's aim is to aid the state in combating crime, quote unquote, and a proposed remedy for a sensationalized issue as literature on crime combating strategies recommends the distribution of life-sustaining resources to alleviate the conditions that produce the desperation that is the target of policing. It is pure and inexplicable violence. This, so this is not about fighting crime. It's about exaggerating the threat of crime. So is this all the result of a misleading propaganda campaign like the war in Iraq, are we being lied into a war in the forests in Atlanta? Absolutely. That's why they keep lying. That's why they keep doing these like uh, propaganda shows. It, I mean, they're trying to maintain the rouge of a, of a conscience, um, but they have none. Uh, if they had one, it, I mean, Tortuguita's mother spoke to them. I don't know if after that people if that didn't move them to cancel the lease i mean they had to kill somebody to they would have, if they built it they would have had to kill someone to do it so you can't argue that this is about isn't about practicing how to murder people you can't argue that this isn't about that because it's already happened to murder and capture people because that's what's happening to even build this the the the, the facility how you do something is what you do right look at the methods that they're they're deploying i think um this is all, yeah, the only reason they're out here talking and spreading lies is to maintain some kind of ruse. And then they, then Andre does this really smug thing where he's like, oh, they just want to get like rid of the police. And he tries to make it sound like it's something that's stupid, right? Um, that there, that, that, that could be a reality, even though the police are like, what's like, as a concept, a couple hundred years old. I, I, um, <laughs> I, I don't know, um, I guess what else it would be, um, especially when, again, I'm doing research for this book and I read even, you know, research funded by state agencies that's like, that talks about the patriarchal origins of policing. I can shoot you that article if you want to, it's a really good one. Or that talks about, um, that talks about how like, uh, like the, if you want to combat crime, get people resources. Like this is, state agencies have been saying this. This is not a, far out idea, right? So if this was about fear of people committing crimes, it would be about getting them resources, right? It's This is not about that. This is about controlling people for what's to come, right? We're facing impending climate catastrophe. That's a done deal, right? There's gonna be a lot of people who need a lot of things that the state will not and, and will not provide, right? There's gonna be a lot of angry people in the streets just like in 2020, right? probably worse because there are going to be a lot of desperate people of who who maybe were rich middle class i mean people are getting laid off from drones when people don't have ways to feed their family and that their condition that the only way to meet their needs is to filter uh their relationships through the state who do you think they're going to turn to and be mad at this is what they're preparing for Miliaku, when your book comes out, make certain you put us on your email list. And please do send me that article on patriarchy and the police. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, for sure. You got it. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me and reading the article. I I genuinely appreciate it. I'm incredibly flattered and touched. Get used to me annoying you in email. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It will never be an annoying for my fellow Detroiter. That's right. All right. Take care. And uh, great to hear you. Great to have you on the show. Really an honor. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you so much.
Take care. Bye. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table, this is hell. And if you feel compelled to start a fight at the family dinner table, especially when extended family is around, one of the best ways to do that is to start going off about defunding the police or the militarization of the police being a slippery slope toward fascism or even, heavens, did you say police and prison abolition? Then all I can say is, you're welcome. If you learned something about Stop Cop City from our conversation with Miliaku, show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell right now by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This week and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. You not only do you get when you become a Patreon subscriber, not only do you get the bonus weekly Patreon podcast with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online. And this year's classic or this week's classic interview will be our 2004 conversation with Daniel Ellsberg, who passed away last week. Uh, plus the discount on the This Is Hell merchandise. You also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced on Patreon. And the newest feature we have on Patreon is every week producer Will Ippen chooses a question from hell for me submitted by patreon subscribers a question that i have not seen nor heard until will asks it on the patreon podcast that's all on this is hell on patreon and only at patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding i think today we're on twitter and discord yes um, the question from hell, I like this one when we're brainstorming. I didn't realize it was a pr- uh, promotion, apparently, but uh, <laughs> Go how will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday? <laughs> how will you celebrate Grimace's birthday? And on Twitter, hypocrite reader said, I actually observed Orthodox Grimace's birthday, <laughs> which is 13 days er- later. Uh, He's apparently celebrating Orthodox Grimace's birthday birthday Eve. Eve. The Orthodox calendar. Uh, Very good. Very good point on your hand. It would be 14 days. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the Eve is important to the coming of Grimace. Sure. (laughs) Don't you have to light a candle? Yes. Uh, I'm not going to develop that joke further. Okay. Fred Bow says, I might have to celebrate with a corporate death burger. And uh, he plays it, he shows a track uh, by MDC entitled Corporate Death Burger. Oh, no kidding. And I'll have to check that out. The image looks cool. So, yeah. And uh, moving on to Discord. Discord, we have got some good ones. Um, Kim G says, we broke up years ago. <laughs> oh, that explains a lot of Kim's answers. Right. Uh, former uh, partner of Grimace, <laughs> who seems to be asexual. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, and the uh, next one actually has a great um, a video clip. Uh, reason to visit our Twitter. Um, or Discord. Uh, Discord. And Twitter, why not? Why not? <laughs> it says, uh, eating whatever this is, and it's... Uh, it's a great clip that uh, of McDonald's, <laughs> and it's um, the Grimace Burger. So you can imagine what that. Oh, that sounds disgusting. 
<laughs> okay, anything else on Discord? That's it. All right, so the, uh, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show, and we will be announcing the winner tomorrow as well. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff online at our website, thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can tweet your answer to us. You can post your answer on Facebook. You can email it to us. You can uh, tweet it at us. You can post it on our Discord. You can post it on Patreon. Wherever, we will be reading all of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll be announcing a winner at the end of this week's show following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Again, Dan, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff will deliver part two of his essay on overweight space-time. All right. We will have the rest of your answers, like I said, to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On June 22nd, 1969, 54 years ago this week in Cleveland, Ohio, the Cuyahoga River literally caught fire. And not for the first time. And I know some of you may reflexively cringe when you hear the word literally used, but Rinaldo Magaldi, who is our, uh, the person who does the writing, original writing for Rotten History, he is literally a book editor by trade, literally, and he literally used the word literally in an appropriate way. However, I just use the word literally, literally, in every possible way. That is wrong. With the growth of Cleveland as an industrial center since the U.S. Civil War, many manufacturing enterprises had seen the Cuyahoga, which flowed directly into Lake Erie, as a convenient place to put their factories. Why not? Dump your waste where it can get into the drinking water for the city. What could possibly go wrong? Or go wrong in a way in which you are actually held criminally liable. Republic Steel, Standard Oil, and Sherwin-Williams Paint were just a few of the companies that saw fit to use the river as a sewer. From the late 19th century well into the 20th, Cleveland residents had grown accustomed to thinking of the Cuyahoga less as a natural waterway than as part of the city's industrial infrastructure. Now that's the American relationship with nature, seeing a river not as a river, but as a sewer. Is there anything that better exemplifies the United States' relationship with nature than that? The river was miserably polluted, full of petroleum slicks and other flammable waste. Dead rats were often seen floating downstream. The stench was terrible. Dead rats, maybe, leisurely enjoying, uh, maybe they're just rats leisurely enjoying a swim while doing a backstroke. Either way, it's not good to have rats floating in your river, living or dead. But the locals were used to the foul odor and routinely made jokes about it. So when an oil slick on the river caught fire, it wasn't considered a major local news story. After all, the Cuyahoga had burned at nine other times, nine times in the past. And this new blaze wasn't even the worst. Firefighters put it out in half an hour and no one uh, even bothered to take a picture which is crazy. Nor was Cleveland the only U.S. city that had seen its polluted waterways burn. But this time the story went national. And to some extent, it was a matter of timing as the environmental movement caught on in the United States and the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. The pollution in the river and Lake Erie were frequently cited in the media as examples of the pollution problem which came to acquire symbolic status. In the years that followed, with new legislation and the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency, the condition of the Cuyahoga River significantly improved. But 
there's always a button in one of these stories when they say something has significantly improved. But as recently as 2018, scientists found that it still contained dangerous levels of PCB and biological, biological pathogens. And I bet that the Cuyahoga is chock full of forever chemicals, PFAs as well, PFAS, whatever. Because of course, you know, it says here, uh, you know, scientists built that it still contained the dangerous levels of PCB, biological uh, pathogens. I mentioned PFAS because, of course, it did, as any real concerns the United States has about the environment always seem fleeting and little more than symbolic in order to soothe our guilt just enough to allow us to continue destroying the planet, which we show little respect for, and it would seem we only show utter disdain. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Dan, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? We've got Alex Hinton, who will have a conversation with us about his Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Rights Dangerous Transphobia. Alex is a distinguished professor of anthropology, director of the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights, UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention. And he's a professor over at Rutgers University, which I forgot to add to that bio. And, of course, we will, as always, have a moment of truth from Jeff Torch. And I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcasting, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. Exceptional job, Dan. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.